save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. In our previous conversation, The Journey to Saving Ganesh, my guest, Philip Price, and I barely began to scratch the surface of the work he's involved in. So varied is his background and the scope of this subject. It is not just about making a film, but so much more. We've just begun to learn about the conflicts and crisis in Sri Lanka and what the project Saving Ganesh means to Philip, to us, to Sri Lankans, Ganesh, and the elephants. So it is my great pleasure to welcome back Philip and continue this outstanding conversation. And yes, we're filming this episode too. You'll find the link here on our Wild World host page. Facebook, and at wildeyes.org, and through Philip's sites, savingthenesh.org, and geowandering.com, and his Facebook sites. Welcome back, Philip. Thank you, Ali. It's wonderful to be back once again. Well, I'm thrilled to continue this conversation. We've got, again, a lot to cover, so um, I'll try to maintain my enthusiasm in interrupting and let you wander through this geography. So, at the end of our previous conversation, you've just begun to share your recent experiences over the past two months in Sri Lanka, working on this project. So, let's begin with the question, why are Asian, specifically Sri Lankan elephants, so important to you? And the second part, with the end of the 30-year civil conflict in 1998, there is new opportunity. We talked about this some in the last episode. But I'd like to like I would like you to explain. So expand. I'm sorry, tongue twist. So let's begin. Well, wonderful, uh, Ellie. It's an extraordinary opportunity to uh, to talk to you about the opportunities that exist now with the Sri Lankan elephant uh, to express uh, to your listeners the plight of the Sri Lankan elephant. Uh, it's near to my heart now, and, and uh, I want to get the word out that the uh, majestic Sri Lankans need need our help. So I, I want to reiterate some of the uh, some of the major points of our last conversation. And that is that uh, there are 350,000 African elephants that exist in the world, uh, maybe 35 to 40,000 Asian elephants, but there's only 5,000 Sri Lankan elephants, a sub- subspecies. Uh, the numbers are uh, uh, dropping uh, as of the last few years, and they're, they're they're likely to drop substantially in the next uh, few years yet. So. Uh, as an uh, environmental advocate, uh, adventure guide that, that I've been for years now, um, I've been aware of this problem and, and haven't done a film years ago about the Sri Lankan elephants. I've been monitoring the situation for years. And, and one thing strikes me most of all is that uh, as a child, and I'll repeat this, I think I expressed it before, but as a child, I was always mystified that the caveman uh, drove the mastodon to extinction. And... And I'm awed by the fact that we, we in our current civilization, are on the brink of bringing, driving uh, majestic species to extinction now during our generation. Um, and I just can't live with that in my generation that I could be at all implicated in the extinction of a majestic elephant. So that that's kind of the 
basis that I come from. Uh, and then the, the, the landscape uh, geologist in me uh, understands the idea of an umbrella or a keystone species. And being a lover of landscape, uh, I know that the elephant is, it is the primary species that will protect or create like an umbrella of protection for other species. So I can do, if I can accomplish uh, through my efforts or my work, um, survive, survival of this species, I think that the landscape will survive uh, and with it many other species. So I, I want to talk about then uh, what, why I actually got involved. And that is because uh, about a year and a half ago or so, there were news reports about um, a conflict in Sri Lanka. The elephants were uh, marauding, uh, destroying crops and fields and killing people. 60,000 or 60 people a year almost were being uh, trampled. And I wondered, well, why are why is not the Department of Wildlife Conservation, the DWC, uh, doing something about that? Because we, we actually paid for relocations when we did a film in 1998. And, uh, and, and I was under the impression, and actually it was a true impression, that they were continuing that program of capturing and relocating elephants, putting them to safe uh, areas in the far side of the island and so forth. Well, for about a year or so, I was monitoring and finding that they were not doing relocations. So. I called my contacts at the DWC and, and tried to find out why uh, nothing was being done. And what I found out was that there were, there were conflicting reports about the success of those programs. Many of the elephants being relocated uh, were returning to their former, former habitat up to 200 miles distant and, and uh, causing a trail of this destruction upon the return to their home range. Um, and they proved this through a Smithsonian uh, uh, radio coloring program. It had been conducted about two years prior. Um, of all the 20 elephants that were captured uh, or, or radio collared uh, and, and relocated, um, the vast majority uh, returned to their home range. Half of them were, were killed or shot. Uh, many of them caused uh, basically disaster <laughs> to their villages upon their route uh, going to their home habitat. So the DWC was unsure how to proceed. So on the one side, there, there were villagers asking for uh, for protection. Help. Sorry. For help? Yeah, they were asking for help, and they weren't receiving it. So the DWC uh, uh, came under fire. They couldn't win on either side. The politicians or others were saying, we need to help our constituents out. DWC was saying, well, we can do that, but we'll only be transporting the problem to the far side of the island. We're still undecided about what to do. So this is a major, major issue that I then renewed contacts in Sri Lanka and thought I could have a, a say in, or at least understand what was going on. And I found out that nobody was taking this issue internationally, that there, there were no conservation groups involved in this, this problem. And several of them had, had backed out a few years uh, prior, and so there's no international attention being drawn, drawn in. Uh, Discovery Channel, there's no news media around the world being brought in either. BBC, public uh, TV, um, Discovery Channel, none of them had anybody on the ground uh, coming into the, to, uh, to do any programs in Sri Lanka. And it was very critical at the time, too, because the 30-year war had just ended, a civil conflict. Uh, and it ended in uh, 1990, or 2008, five years prior. And, and I, as I saw, there was new opportunity in the country. Elephants, um, I thought, would, would have a safer uh, presence in the country and maybe the numbers would grow, and, and there would be maybe be, uh, new programs, uh, TV programs, documentaries brought in because there's new opportunity, opportunity in the country. 
there's no interest. Nobody was doing anything uh, uh, as far as documentaries or film work. That's so there was a vacuum, and you felt you were in a unique position uh, with your history, your passion, and your skills to reignite this 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 project. Not only your film, but reignite the passion within the depart- wildlife department and fill a void or a gap or a vacuum left by political aspects. Right. Yeah. Good point. I, I think that uh, people in these, these kind of countries, whether it be uh, uh, Thailand, uh, no, uh, Burma, Myanmar, uh, Sri Lanka, and these places, it, um, they want to know that people are watching and are caring about what they're doing. Um, they, they don't operate in a vacuum. There was a vacuum, though. It was amazing to me. When I spoke with the uh, directors of, of wildlife in, in Sri Lanka, uh, there was no sounding board for them to relate what was going on to the outside world. Um, I think part of this was because uh, politicians and others were tentative about engaging the outer world. There was some, conflict, there was some uh, controversy about how the civil conflict ended. And so uh, the government was very protective over uh, news media or documentary filmmakers, whoever coming into the country during this very sensitive time, because there might have been some, well, I have to say, potential for war, war crimes in how the, the civil conflict concluded. Um, so they're very sensitive to the kind of news coming in, and they wanted to kind of more or less control uh, the media and the spin give, being given on the country. So so when I came in and, and had a history, remember I had been there in 1998, uh, we did three films there, they felt a certain trust with me. So they, they were able to actually open up a little the Department of Wildlife and others in ministry and so forth, felt a certain safety with me, that, that I had some continuity. Um, but still they were very protective over over filmmakers coming into the country during this time. So this brings me to a little bit of a point, of some of which we covered last time in uh, the previous episode about your background. You're a yoga practitioner, you meditate, and you have skills, and you're a geologist, and you're a scientist. So does this bring, for you, um, a specific, or has it influenced how you approach the interaction with the Department of Wildlife? the Sri Lankan people, and the political landscape that you had to work within. Right. Well, that's a good question. Actually, I've been become more of a practitioner of, of yoga and, and meditation so far, so far since I was there in 1998. So uh, I've tra- traveled uh, extensively to, to India and other places in Asia uh, over the years and uh, as well. And, and so I have greater uh, heartfelt connection to uh, Buddhist islands such as Sri Lanka. Um, and so that, that, that influenced, I think, how I connect with the people. Um, they feel, feel uh, the Department of Wildlife and the, and, and the villagers uh, uh, feel a sense of safety when I come in. And, and so they, they, uh, uh, they, they uh, through my interviews, um, opened up to me. And, and, and I did extensive interviews with, from Buddhist monks to rangers to, um, to villagers, farmers. Uh, that's part of my film project was to get a read on the opinion uh, or the perspective of, of, uh, of the Sri Lankans. And, and the ma- most major part to me was, is the culture still attached to the iconic uh, stature of this elephant? Do they have the wherewithal, the passion to protect it? Because if they don't, uh, much more likely will, it will go extinct. And so I wanted to find out, well, you know, there's 90% more, or 90% of the people are Buddhists, basically. Um, 
the elephant has always been uh, center, you know, central to to the, the iconic kind of worship of the country. They they honor the elephant. It's a it's a mover of obstacles. It has you know Ganesha. It's um, it has a, a stature going back over twenty five hundred years. So this is where the village elders that are still there post the civil post civil conflict, and now within this elephant landscape conflict, the village elders would be and reconnecting through your. The Buddhist mindset and an understanding of the culture and this reconnection you were talking about, this iconic species, that would be of a of an import in terms of relating and working with the communities. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. The communities, um, all of them felt felt uh, the, the, as a, like a liaison um, you know, to the outer world, and they uh, and being of similar similar philosophy to life or whatever to them. And again, they felt that certain trust. You know, it's interesting in that uh, uh, as much as I would connect and bond with these people, and they would give us uh, contacts, so we would, we had a chain of, of a network uh, that went quite deep, uh, so that we would get to the right people to talk and ask the right questions and have very dynamic conversations in our interviews. Um, so through that, I'm sorry, through that, did you find out that they still care? Do they still care? Absolutely, and um, you know, and. and and a few examples, like 1998, I remember we, we went uh, and interviewed this gentleman whose wife was trampled by an elephant only the previous day, and I thought, oh, oh my goodness, you know, he uh, survived this to be witness to the trampling and all. How can he cope? How can he wake up in the morning? And on top of that, how can our film crew be there <laughs> with with our intention of filming this guy, this this gentleman? And and it was found out that for one, he uh, like a lot of uh, villagers. The belief that there's karma that comes into play, uh, there's something that happened in, in his wife's prior previous life, or even this life, that, that she had harmed in some way, uh, and created some karmic uh, energy there. That the elephant, you know, was led to do this behavior, and so um, it was such a incredible finding for me that, that they're able to to get up in the morning after such event and and express to us, you know, these philosophies. Uh, and I have to say, though, at the same time, this gentleman, he knew that he was working with the international film crew, that he would get attention to his village and to himself and his plight. And so, uh, and, and actually, they, they do get compensated uh, by the government when, when there's damage to the crops or fields or death in the family, that there's a, there's a scale of compensation. And so he knew that our attention would guarantee that he would be paid. And only like 10% of the people today are paid as they're supposed to be. So 90% of people don't get compensated for, for deaths or whatever. But that's really a small remuneration for something of this scale. You know, and, and that's what's amazing is, is, is I can, it's hard for me to fathom uh, the emotional or the spiritual connection they have uh, to landscape and to elephants, which they do. But, you know, they, they live in a pragmatic society. Money uh, matters. They often can't afford putting good, good food on the table. And so... Um, and they're, they're, they're driven <laughs> they, to get up in the morning to find that food and the resources. So it's a practical matter to feed their families. So, it, it, you know, there's always a balance and finding that balance to know if, if, if it's tipping, the scales are tipping to, to the side where, where, uh, they're only concerned about economic, um, uh, survival or if spirituality is, is, is central. And, and, and that's uh, much of my, uh, philosophy and coming in and my interest in Buddhism and meditation and yoga is is some, does somewhere in the world do they have something beyond economic motivation 
<laughs> you know, it, well, it's, it's what I call and talk about a lot on Our Wild World, which is a redefinition of the benchmark of health and wealth. And you've really hit on the crux of it. There is the financial aspect of health and wealth, and that money does make a difference. But there's that other aspect that our health is our wealth. And money doesn't always coin, doesn't always play as critical a role there. And that's what this project and the work that you've been doing is, is finding out. So I, I have a question. How can the people reconcile their faith in Buddhism with the reality of 60 deaths per year um, at the hands of elephants? So that's 60 people dying a year. And to not take that out on the elephant or take it out on the elephant and everything we were just talking about, how does that end up how did you find that ended up coming together? How did that entwine? It, it's it's a uh, you know, sixty people a year. It seems like a large large number, but in comparison, more people die of snake bites in Sri Lanka. Way more people die of automobile accidents. Uh, other accidents account for uh, way more. And I, I found that the Sri Lanka, like we have in the West, we have a media that sensationalizes issues, sensationalizes to where it, it, it warps all sense of reality and balance. And, and they're not immune to that. Uh, you know, villagers and all, they get news and they, 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 they like, like, like us in the West, think our, their reality is kind of shaped by those who will spin it, the, the journalists and others. And, and I had, I bore witness to, to some of this incredible uh, spinning when I, when I was there as well. Uh, often there was a, there was this, uh, this, uh, kind of conflict or dichotomy between my interaction with the villagers and the, and the simple people of the land, including even rangers and even veterinarians and so forth, them versus the businessmen and, uh, and, and as well as the, uh, uh, the politicians. You know, I, I, I was, uh, I, you know, I was trying to, uh, to film in, in some of the different locations. In fact, and before I could film there, I had to get certain permits from the government and, and I ran into roadblocks, uh, ministry and so forth wanted to minimize my, my, uh, my free flight or whatever through the country. Uh, because they thought there was money at stake here. Right. They actually increased the fee to film in national parks. While I was there, while I was awaiting a permit in, in the state of, in the, uh, in the capital of Colombo, the fee was $1,500 to film in, in the parks. And, uh, and they raised it exponentially. While I was there on the ground, all set, ready to go, have crew, everybody ready, and they decided that it should be $15,000. Cool. So they saw an opportunity <laughs> that they thought they could take advantage of economically. <laughs> yeah. And fortunately, you were able to set it straight and say, this is about much more than the money in your pocket today and the survival through the night. We're trying to do something much, much more. And the people that I was working with all understood that. Uh, the ministry and politicians they were, they were about the economic gain, whatever would be to be uh, taken. And, 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 uh, so all of my, uh, contacts there said, we're going to work around this. Maybe we can't get, get through the ministry right now, but we, we have our ways to, to, uh, to mitigate that and allow you to go and film most everywhere as we were, we were in the, the director general of wildlife, uh, actually gave direction to, uh, all the regional directors or seven of them and the veterinarians to work with, with my project. So regardless of any actual permit and the $15,000 fee, which they thought was insane, that they, they would do that to us uh, and mix the project, perhaps, um, uh, we were able to proceed and, and, and do our film project. 
And um, we're going to take a short break here right now because we're going to get into the actual filming experience and some of the stories that you, uh, you have to relate, which are going to be very exciting. So stick with us. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest, Philip Price, and Saving Ganesh. Follow us on Facebook, both projects and Wild Eyes, both Philip and Ellie, Wild Eyes, Saving Ganesh, and geowandering.org. And you can find us on Twitter, and we will be right back. Stay with us. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. This is Our Wild World with my guest, Philip Price. And before break, we were talking about, uh, we were regrouping and remembering our previous conversation and taking off in being in Sri Lanka. So you literally, literally just returned from two months on the ground in Sri Lanka and uh, this filming adventure. So I have two questions here, sort of a two-part question. Knowing what we've covered previously before the break and in our last episode, the journey to saving Ganesh, what was it like coming back and from the elephant whispering project that we've talked about to knowing where to start at this point, at this journey? Right. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Good question. You know, originally uh, when I was speaking with the the Department of Wildlife Conservation, they had intentions of not necessarily doing elephant relocations as they had back in 1998 and for, for a decade afterward. Um, they weren't going to do that in the same way because they saw that how the, the elephants will, uh, retract, will retrace their steps or whatever back to the original home range. So this so, brings in a really important point that I know we want to cover. Yeah. Uh, we made a point of it. Elephant memory is legendary. So what you're talking about here is the relocation didn't work the way it's planned because nobody 
counted on elephant memory. <laughs> they, I guess, have forgotten about how good their memory <laughs> is. <laughs> so, you know, the the the, the, uh, the memory is so so strong for the elephants. Like, like it, it, it talked about how the karma it comes into play and how that gentleman's wife was trampled the previous day, and perhaps the, the elephant has some memory. Uh, karmic memory or something, but something spiritually was involved there. Um, but there, there are real examples. I interviewed many people about elephants that would give chase, uh, bad elephants that would come into a village and chase after a certain individual, uh, bypassing 10, 15, 20 people along the way to go to, you know, to, to trample one individual. So you're talking two kinds of memory here. We're talking specific individual singular elephant memories of a situation or a person, but we're also talking about a larger elephant memory, which I can relate to African elephants, that when they're moved, when they don't want to be relocated, and you've been telling me specifically about the bulls, they don't want to be moved, so they're coming back right. to where they were. So that's where some of this conflict... They, they have long-term memory, short-term memory, they have geographic memory, they have all sorts of uh, memory that, that actually we don't really know the extent of. And that's why one, and, you know, I'll jump ahead here just real quickly. We, we need to do research on, on their specific memory, the Sri Lankan elephant memory. So it might be different than African even. Um, one of the conservationists I worked with, worked with over there, a local conservationist uh, who was part of the radio coloring of 20 elephants, uh, wants to radio color 100 elephants. And and see just where their movement is, uh, and to look at seasonal movements and you know, how the memory comes into play with, with uh, their home range and bull elephants, how far they do go you know, far to return seasonally uh, for mating purposes or, or what have you. Um, so so that, this is part of understanding uh, the extent of their movements. I, I have to say I'm a little amazed, a little surprised, a little shocked that this isn't done. In, in my work with African elephants, this is all... A continuous process. That's how we know so much about African elephants. So, is part of your work in this project in, engaged in in making this happen? Because without that information that you just talked about, we're not going to move forward with elephants. We're not. That, that's kind of the, the role I've determined. You know, I, uh, in doing the elephant whispering project, like I was originally intending to do, and have a specific uh, goal in mind for a film. Um, Originally, the idea of just funding and, and, and filming relocation of these, what I called then rogue elephants, back to what's called elephant holding ground, a fenced compound where the elephants would be safe. Well, anyway, that, that was all fine and good, but I found out that that's not where the problems really lie yet. They, the Department of Wildlife doesn't really know what the long-term prognosis is for handling the elephants. Um, the, the elephant holding ground is 3,000 acres where they're going to relocate elephants. It's not, not even complete yet. They lose, they've lost some, some motivation because they don't know in the construction of it because they don't know if it's going to be the final plan because there's other size studies going on that are finding that that's probably a bad idea to begin with. So these, these, this elephant holding ground, elephant whispering program, in the, in the year I was involved in this project, it's fallen off as, you know, as a lesser importance. Uh, it kind of unraveled. It, it, it unraveled. And, and so, my role then, when I, and that would have only been the tip of the iceberg, even if that had gone forward, there were so many other issues with elephants that, uh, you know, it's a long-term project of mine. And I, and I, now I, I know where my greatest role is in my, 
my uh, program, uh, my organization, Saving Ganesh, uh, is being a liaison between the different uh, uh, interests that, that, that are in Sri Lanka, such as uh, a, a doctor of, uh, of, of conservation and wildlife management uh, has been one of the primary consultants, expressed to me he wants to get funding for the 100 collars, $6,000 uh, per collar. So it's quite a bit of money, right, using satellite technology. But wouldn't this, I'm sorry to interrupt, wouldn't this be a lot better use of the money in terms of your filming project? Uh, what we talked about in the last episode, the aerial photography, otherwise known as drones, or how or unmanned uh, cameras, whatever you want to look at it, and everything you just talked about that elephant whisper unraveled, that perhaps this rogue elephant, which is a judgment called by us people, <laughs> yeah. the elephant doesn't feel it's being rogue, it's doing what it... it remembers to do. So putting all this together and your experience on in Sri Lanka over the last two months, it sounds like you've really had to sort of reorganize. I'm not going to say start from scratch because you have gained a whole lot of information. So with that in mind and this recent trip, tell us a little what happened. Give us some of the, the, the tales that you were telling me about. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, you know, that's, uh, I had some interesting encounters using Western technology in Sri Lanka. Uh, and, 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 and before I get into the, 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 uh, the most incredible story with, with concerning my drone, I want to express that you know, I brought some uh, transmitters there uh, into, to Sri Lanka using um, cell phone technology. I talked a little about it last time. And, and I think that that could help uh, the cost of, of actually tracking these elephants. And so as a liaison and a scientist myself, I'm working between the Department of Wildlife, trying to push them to agree to radio collaring 100 elephants if, if various uh, if various herds in north and south, different geographic regions, to see how they intermingle the herds and how their home range is and how they intermingle. That my conservationist friend in the south, who who will be given a contract, I think ultimately to do this, is having a hard time convincing the you know, Department of Wildlife of doing this. Uh, but I've bridged that gap. The last time I spoke with the, uh, the uh, director of elephant conservation, he, he's pretty much getting on board. So he's going to put a proposal forward to the director general, which will then go to the ministry, to fund that program. So th th this is a role that Stephen Ganesh can play, which, which uh, I feel is more important than just doing one specific film. And, 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 have, and my, my connection to the place is too great, and I'm finding I have a unique role as the only outside you know, Western entity a conservation group you know, be involved in these programs. So anyway, we were talking about technology, and and I, you know, I brought a drone. You know, some of Americans' <laughs> uh, technology that we're so proud of um, for different reasons. But I used, I brought a small aerial camera with me. Incredible technology. Uh, that's 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 every year. It's amazing how how these are better uh, equipped. Uh, and and for a filmmaker. They're very stable. I can fly them a quarter mile high and get the most stable images, high definition, and I can actually monitor these from the ground. I can see the vision of of this copter from the ground, and I can actually see elephants or or, uh, or you know whatever wildlife is is around as long as it's you know, larger, from a quarter mile high. But anyway, um, at one point I was uh, in the Department of Wildlife, and we we're trying to locate an injured elephant, and so I 
uh, I hadn't yet gotten certain permits from the ministry for flying my, my drone and so or my aerial, aerial camera. So I was hesitant to use it unless unless some official said, well, you have our approval, you put it in the air. So I had that approval. We're in the middle of the jungle, very few people around, and they felt safe without a permit, you know, that I could still fly it because we were our location and an elephant was injured and needing and it couldn't be located. The elephant trackers, 15 of them, couldn't find it. The day we had moved on as near twilight, we wanted to find it to medicate this elephant early the next morning. We wanted to know where it's at. So I put my drone up in the air, flew it around for a while, and people were amazed. All jaws were dropped, and you know, and I got some incredible images. And I, I, I brought it back down. We couldn't find, unfortunately, we couldn't find the elephant. But I brought the, the uh, drone back down, and, and there was one journalist that was there. He was a friend of the director, and we felt safe that it was okay for him to talk to me. So he ended up doing kind of an informal interview with me. Uh, He sold that interview to the media the next day, and and he he had promised us he would hold hold on until he had appropriate permits. Anyway, he sold it for $20. He actually told us later, $20 again for that story. It went national. Every TV program had clips of me being interviewed, you know, and they called it American with private drone flying illegally in Sri Lanka. And of course, everybody, they hear about American drones and they associate Americans with that. And I was all of a sudden... Uh, and military. Yeah, military, which they have a lot of bases all around the area. So, uh, middle of the night, <laughs> we got word that uh, it had gone national. It was going viral. This report of my flying a drone. And it, was, it was all to save an elephant, you know, and we had the request of wildlife, Department of Wildlife. So we had up in, at two in the morning, all of my film equipment, all the crew, everybody had to escape in the night and find a safe haven in the, in the capital of Colombo to hide among the masses because we, we got the local police got wind of it and they, they don't have the, they, you know, they got the spin from the media. We spun it all crazy ways and, and of course the elite were afraid that we'd be at the local, the mercy of the local police and, and so we, we escaped until it settled down. So it just sort of goes to show, as we were talking about a minute ago, media spin, mm-hmm. technology, having access to technology, needing a place needing this technology relationships with the political powers that be versus the local on the ground, boots on the ground, what would seem like to us a no-brainer in putting all this together suddenly can go terribly wrong because of one misstep and thinking for a very, very short term, $20 today, which puts this person's actions, puts so much at risk. So it's a reminder for us all to... Think of the big picture, hold that, and then take appropriate action along the way. It was ironic that uh, with the greatest intentions that we had to uh, save an endangered species that, uh, that we could be sold out so cheaply. Uh, to be on the run, the whole program was uh, at risk of collapsing uh, until the Director General and others spoke with the ministry and decided uh, it wasn't worth an inquiry, that they decided not to do an inquiry. But we still stayed in the press. Uh, three days straight on the TV and, and, and the news, news media for several days. Everywhere I'd go for the next two months, uh, people recognize me. <laughs> they would come, come up and look at me with a big smile and say, "You're the American, American filmmaker." And I, you know, and I, you know, big smile. I knew wherever I go, they didn't have to speak English. They just had that look in their face, and I knew what, what they were referring to. And it was so, everywhere. So a situation that went terribly wrong for the moment ended up actually working out. 
in your favor. You're alive, I'm glad, here <laughs> to tell the tale. But it is a really good reminder to um, stick with the program. Don't tell tales out of school, uh, so to speak. If you're in a place where there's conflict, such as Africa, it's, it's probably best not to say where and what in detail that you're operating in case, what is it, loose lips sink ships and little ears, little pitchers have big ears. So we've got um, a little time before the break. Um, we were talking about the actual filming experience, and that's, that's a tale not many people have, having to escape in the middle of the night. So um, you've talked about the interaction with the government and some interaction with real people. So let's talk just a little bit about the actual plight of the elephants. In our first episode, we talked about some of what the crisis is. Unlike African elephants, it's not about ivory poaching. It is about land use, people coming back into what were abandoned lands during the civil conflict, which is good for elephants, as you'd said, because people left. But now we have this interaction with elephants, uh, because of their memory, coming back into lands where people now want to be. So um, there's a couple of questions here. We, we sort of understand the main conflict, but uh, and that the government is taking note of these complications and changing their approach because of your input and your ability and your access to technology and information and a plan. And it's, it's a picture of great complexity. So, um, one question is, can the Sri Lankan economy handle the necessary cost of restoring the habitats, the elephant relocation, and putting the brakes on development at this thin green line where the elephant and people, the conflict is happening? Right, right. Yeah. They're, you know, in the north, you know, I expressed previously about how, how the civil conflict ended about five years ago, and now refugees are returning to the land and, 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 uh, and uh, basically recultivating the fields where elephants have enjoyed free reign you know, for, the, for 30 years. They're being now herded and driven back into these, these, these uh, jungles to compete with other elephants in shrinking habitat and thus there's a chance of starvation. Um, and, and, and of course a lot of them, these elephants then will go to the fringe areas to where the farmers live and the villages trying, trying to, you know, to, to, you know they'll, they'll come in and uh, raid the fields and so forth in the, in the night. Um, and then also uh, discovered there are irrigation, big centralized irrigation projects going on also in the north and as well as some the marina being built in the south, a big harbor actually, a new airport, international airport where they're pushing, driving these elephants out. Economic progress, right? They're going to then be able to uh, to irrigate these fields in the north, and and, uh, and as an example, um, year round. So what used to be uh, only seasonally um, irrigated um, through during the wet season, now we'll, we'll have reservoir water from big dam projects that are being built right now, uh, and these these cultivated fields will be fenced such that the elephants can't come in at all. And they used to enjoy use of these fields at least half the year, if not all year, during the war, the conflict. So it's now, so there's a, it's a double whammy here. So not only are they being pushed out seasonally from in the north, but but they're actually being fenced out now. So this this is a really complex, multifaceted, multi-layered issue that you're dealing with. 
people and wildlife. It's never simple when they meet at that confluence. So everything that you've just talked about is, is the elephant itself being considered as a part of this grand economic progress plan? Right. Yeah. They're not. I say that uh, uh, they're, they're, they're not being considered as they should be. The, the tourism economy is, is quite major, and there's uh, the, the idea of like branding the country, the elephant country. And that, this is one of the greatest hopes I have for the longevity, for sustainability of, of the elephants there, uh, is to brand the country such that adventure-guided uh, uh, trips or eco-travel would, you know, eco, you know, uh, eco-tourism would be enhanced. Uh, people associate Sri Lanka with elephant. And so that, that creates an economic driver. Uh, so that being the case, the government might decide, hey, we, we should go ahead and, and, uh, and, and give uh, some benefits to the villagers and all that have conflict, those that uh, have, have, have been hurt by it from tra- tramplings as bad, you know, as rare as they are, but cultivated field uh, raiding uh, during the night and so forth, they should be compensated so that the villagers uh, get some benefit of allowing the elephants to, 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 uh, to uh, you know, roam freely through the jungles. Incentive. So, yeah, give some incentive. Give some benefit to these farmers that make only $100 a month. So, you know, it's it's not that much uh, out of their, the government government fund to pay for those those uh, minimal con- uh, conflicts or well, or not when you weigh it against the other possibilities and the other disasters and damage and deaths that could occur, death of both people and death of an elephant. Right. So it sounds like we've got about a minute here until we have to take a break. So. Um, it sounds like this is a very complex issue and that it takes sometimes some distance to step away to be able to look at it, but being a Westerner, you also have access and it's hard to implement that sometimes on the ground with so many moving parts. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. But before the break here, I want to emphasize something that that's, is, is, I want to keep in mind and want everybody to keep in mind fully, and that is... Uh, it, in the last five years since the end of the war, the, the risk of, of this uh, elephant going extinct is magnified by tenfold. Whatever the risk was ten, five years ago before the war was going on, uh, they, they were going to survive during that time. Now, in the last five years, there's almost no chance, given the first, the current course of action, there's almost no chance this species will survive. There has to be dramatic change in the approach to managing the elephant. And that's what, after the break here, I want us to talk about. We'll be right back. Stick with us. And this is Our Wild World. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. 
Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. So, we're welcome back with Philip Price and... Uh saving Ganesh. And this, as you can tell, there is so much information to pass along here. It's hard to get it all in into this time frame. So here you are, Philip, on the ground in Sri Lanka, cameras in hand, aerial cameras up above, working at night in difficult conditions with wildlife department, with political hiccups, rogue journalists, you know, putting you and the whole project in danger. So let's bring it down to actual interactions with people and um, with particular elephants. You have some fascinating stories to tell us. Um, one of an elder gentleman and this traditional uh, connection to elephant and one particular elephant. Yeah, we, we, we had uh, the bulk of the time filming there. We, we spent really uh, filming real people, real encounters with elephants, you know, interviews and of course, we went out for actions, action scenes. Um, what we networked at one point, um, such that we found out where this one elder, a seventy-year-old farmer, had been having nightly encounters with an elephant coming in to try to raid, raid his field. This elderly uh, succeeded in, 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 in repelling the uh, incursions of this elephant, um, and but he had to work diligently every night. So we we followed him out this one night. Didn't think much of it, you know. He, he wasn't too. He wasn't really too happy to have us trailing along, although it was worth his, his time economically later because he got a good bonus from me that <laughs> he didn't know it at the time. <laughs> so we followed him out with our twelve million candle power lights and a few cameras and a few reflectors and things. And, and I, you know, and uh, I thought he would be leading us to a safe place in the middle of his ten acre field, uh, like most of the farmers have. I mean, we, most of these farmers will have tree houses. We can go to a high perch and be safe. And catch images far below, uh, but th- in this case, we walked out to center of the field, and, and he kind of he, he kept on walking, and we're stumbling on along behind him, and all, and thinking, I sure hope this is worthwhile. He doesn't seem too energized to help us out and to do anything extraordinary for for our film, but let's do it. This is our committed, we're committed, right? So we're walking out in the middle of the field, and it's only a little mound he has in the middle of the field, and there's no safety, no tree we can climb, no tree house, no barrier of any sort. And I thought this is a bad idea. <laughs> you know, so Madawa, my, my second camera, and myself, my primary camera, are, are setting up and thinking, well, we the most of it, you know. And the elephant comes, maybe we just get startled and shine 12 million candles in his eyes, you know, and we'll run the other way. <laughs> so we did what we, what we could. But anyway, we set up, while 
his uh, elder uh, gentleman got a campfire going, and he, he got it going uh, as we were you know, we were setting up, thinking, well, this would be great to have a campfire and an elder bait uh, in, in you know with the surrounding landscape. This was at nighttime now, twilight plus, maybe a little darker. He sat on this old rickety bench they built, looking down at his campfire, and a glow, this orange glow off his face, uh, caught our attention. It's like, wow, this is a really beautiful setting. And uh, middle of Sri Lanka jungle, you know, clearly cultivated field, cultivated field within the jungle. Um, so we set up our cameras, and then lo and behold, he started singing a song, and we did not expect that at all. And he wasn't putting on a show for us, either. Um, and we thought we couldn't get our cameras rolling fast enough. <laughs> you know, we, so this was his nightly routine. <laughs> nightly routine. He translated, he found, we found out that he had, he had two or three songs he sang repeatedly, and um, they had to do with elephant conflict. Uh, you know, and it was something like. You know, please, elephant, uh, if you raid our field, please leave us, leave us enough to feed our families. Uh, and then and it would kind of, uh, like a mantra, re- repeat the same theme. These were like, and I learned later, these are like thousand-year-old songs that these farmers have been singing for, for years. And we were capturing a 70-year-old man who had the song that had, had been passed down to him through generations. And we caught him in the most amazing glow, amazing light, amazing tone. Uh, we, 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 it was a magical moment for us. And, and it was scary, though, because the first time I heard it, he let out this big holler that I didn't know. I didn't think a 70-year-old man could let out. And we, like, fell over backwards. Like, oh, my God, if I was an elephant, I would scram. <laughs> so, and, and that's the intent. You sing the song and then, and then startle, you know, this, have a startling yell, and the elephant would just, like, scram. Did <laughs> so, it work? Did well, no, no elephant came out. But and, that night? Yeah, that night. And for the next few couple nights, we were out there. So this this begs the question for me. I, I've got to ask it. Um, do you think the song really had a meaning, or was it more of a ritual and a habit to go out there and sing, create comfort, and do this, or was he really connecting and singing to the elephants or the god of elephant? I'd say all, all of the above. There's a, a spiritual connection uh, in their faith uh, with karma and so forth. He is honoring. Think the, the, this uh, this uh, in, in, in an enlightened place that the culture is, which is uh, a balance of la- landscape, spirit, and, and wildlife and landscape. He was honoring all the above, and he in, in the song represented this balance. I, I do believe it represented that we you know that the human is not all powerful. That we have respect, and one of the songs was such that if you take a little bit, leave some for us, and so. So here we have this history, this cultural, this bond. Where did it break down? Why is it broken down now? At the same time, you're telling me we started uh, in the last conversation about elephant herding, H-E-R-D. I'd like like you to tell us what this process is. But obviously there is a disconnect because elephants are being killed. So this one elder gentleman may be a passing culture. He has a different relationship. Post-civil conflict, we have younger people coming up, reclaiming their land. So there is a disconnect. Elephants are dying. People are being killed by elephants. Um, Some changing attitudes. Money is more important. So where is this breakdown, and how are you going to address this? You know, it it is. that's why the last five years is a dramatic shift, and the economy is starting to boom now for tourism and so forth. Because tourists are going there. It's, it's a regional paradise island. Uh, China is investing incredible billions of dollars in development there. So China, 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 China. China. Oh, my, my listeners will understand what 
uh, a lot of the damage China is doing. It's a great economic powerhouse, and it makes things happen, but a lot of times, especially in Africa and perhaps in Sri Lanka, at the loss of some critical ecosystem drivers. Right. They Well, Chinese are, 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 uh, are pulling in Sri Lanka, which has a strategic uh, place in the world uh, for building a harbor, giving a 99-year lease to the Chinese to use it as a communication center for their military, actually. So the position of Sri Lanka, it's a, it's a strategic location. This frightens <laughs> me. Yeah, it should. And so they built, built the, this new harbor and communication center in the most southern part of Sri Lanka and driven out, um, in that case, almost 100 elephants uh, from that region alone. We spent quite a bit of time down there. But, uh, but I want to get uh, get to the... the um, the idea of the, the, the long-term conflict. You know, it, through thousands of years, there was uh, an easy balance, if you will, between uh, the villagers, the farmers, and the elephants. There's always been an interaction and a little conflict. It was always sustainable. The numbers uh, speak for themselves, I think, before the modern era, uh, that, that there was an uncomfortable sometimes uncomfortable association or that elephants manage to that they survive. survive and people survive and, so and, 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 and the jungles were larger the problem areas were the fringe of the jungles where the elephants sometimes would come uh, in, 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 you know, into the central uh, the villages and so forth um, part part of the problem now is that the there are about 25,000 tanks irrigation wells or not wells but, but reservoirs 25,000 in Sri Lanka uh, 15,000 of them irrigated areas, um, uh, villages, uh, farmers' fields, and so forth. Uh, maybe 10,000 or so were in the center of jungle areas that were built 1,000 thousand years ago, uh, up to even 2,000 years ago. Most of those were maintained until the most modern era. The maintenance ended. Uh, economic reasons or whatever, the Department of Wildlife and government didn't emphasize or didn't, uh, didn't put the resources to maintain these wells or these uh, we call them tanks, actually, reservoirs. So, the elephants need water every day. They have to go somewhere to get, to get the water. They, they have a habit of, of returning to the same tank, the same reservoir for the water. Elephant memory. <laughs> Once <laughs> again. There's so much to say about that memory, too, that we didn't get into. But, but it, anyway, so most of the elephants now, they, they live kind of in the fringe areas of these jungle jungles. There's a lot of dry... Because that's where the water is, that's but that's also where the and people are. They share those tanks with the villagers. So the villagers are, are accustomed to them coming in on the far side of the tanks to get their water, and then, and then this, uh, basically then uh, go back into the jungle areas. Uh, but, but there's more conflict in, you know, in that fringe, the jungle fringe. So, and now with the, the, having so many elephants driven out for economic reasons from the, where the harbor, the marina's being built, the reservoirs, the return of the refugees in the north. Oh my goodness! So those elephants now returning to these jungles that are dry, who have, where there's ten thousand reservoirs or tanks that are not maintained. So the pressure is on the fringe areas of the jungles, and there's no way that it's sustainable. So there's so much conflict. But it's so critical here also, though, is in, in the colonial era, uh, and, and, and more recently. Uh, a certain industrialization has come come in uh, to play, and so and it has to do with big centralized projects, uh, irrigation projects, which I referred to earlier, where we're doing year-round irrigation now. So the the farmers, the small farmers and villagers who have maintained a sustainable lifestyle for eons, literally eons, 
um, are finding they're being swept up into the modern era of uh, year-round irrigation with in monthly uh, bills to pay for that water. And, G- and I'll have to say it, GMO, Monsanto Supplied Seed, <laughs> that have, have come in, which now they're, 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 they're trying to outlaw. That, that, though, for over the last decade or so, has been uh, a major driver of farms, industrial farming, and so forth. So their sustainable lifestyles changing. Um, and, 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 and so my, my thought is that we have to honor, and that's what I, what I want us to do through some ideas I have, uh, about how to restore tanks in the jungle, how, how to, to create uh, uh, buffer zones, uh, less palatable food for the elephants along the buffer zones, uh, how, you know, how, how to put in bio barriers, how to have, I call it preferential flow, where the elephants have, uh, will, will take the, the path with the least resistance. And so the center, you know, these paths, they'll, they'll go you know, from range to range or migration corridor, what have you, but the idea of preferential flow so you can enhance the landscape in the center of the, uh, the jungles to, to preferentially draw the elephants away from conflict areas. So, you, you, you know, so the existing jungle is, that they're now actually can be multiplied. The jungle, the, the usable jungle, the elephant usable jungle now is about half of what it potentially could be. If you restore the tanks in the center jungle, it could, it could actually support about twice the number of elephants. So the elephants that are here now could find sustainability if management is done correctly. And that's what uh, I'm working with some conservationists there in the country uh, and developing my own plans for preferential flow, which is a, a pet idea of mine from years of, as a ge- landscape geologist, environmental geologist. Um, so we implement these, these ideas and, uh, and pull the elephants away from conflict areas. And, you know, I haven't shared so many stories of that we recorded of actual villagers and their, and their encounters with elephants, most of those people, when we talked to them, they would express frustration about the need for the elephants to come and share their resources, their tanks, and, 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 and trample their paddy fields and so forth on the edges. Um, and they know that there are tanks and ponds in the inner part of the, the jungle that would draw them away. And, and so they, they just tug on my shirt and say, please tell the government, the ministry, the Department of Wildlife, we need your help. So what we have here really is, for lack of a better phrase, a perfect storm of opportunity. And what, excuse me, what Philip is working on, and hopefully that our audience has gained from the previous episode, The Journey to Saving Ganesh, and today's episode, is that everything is really karmically, behaviorally, politically, um, traditionally, uh, spiritually lining up for new opportunities, access new uh, technology. So in creating this plan, there is a plan, and whether it came from a Sri Lankan or Philip or somebody, it all can work together. It can coalesce and move things forward, leapfrog on what we already know, the history that you know, the film that you've got, the experiences that you had on the ground, and knowing elephant movements, people movements, that elephants and people are going to connect at certain places. So you've created a plan to move forward. So what I'd like our audience to understand it and visit savingganesh.org and geowandering.com and Philip's Facebook page because you'll get 
a whole lot more information of what we haven't been able to cover in these two episodes of how everything is really lining up to a forward movement that could be, I, I, I want to say, a no-brainer in terms of living with the landscape and the elephants. So we have um, just a little bit more time here. Um, you had a couple other stories, or is there something in particular that uh, you want us to know about at this point, and maybe how we can help? Right, right. Well, I think that uh, you can help by actually going to the website and consider donating to Saving Ganesh or participating in one of my adventure uh, guided trips, which I do in various locations around the world that right now is totally focused on, on Sri Lanka. And I intend I'm going back there uh, twice a year in person. I have people on the ground there that I work with and keep tabs on what's going on. And I, I might increase it to three or four trips per year, to tell you the truth, because that's what might be necessary. But I would say that the, the you know, the Sri Lankan uh, politicians and ministry, in their rush to to benefit from the end of the civil conflict, as, as putting aside traditional values. Uh, and those traditional values actually are the ones that are closest to my heart, and I think a lot of my friends' heart. Was, and which, it got them so very far to throw it all the way um, to look at our model as the best of the best, and we've thrown away a lot of our, our history, our traditional practices, the things that make you go, dog, this is the way we should live. It's not worth throwing it away, and I think you've highlighted just how important it is to maintain it. It, it is very true, and it's amazing to know in their in their rush to develop, to, to up, up, optimize their the, the, those opportunity for their to grow their economy, and the rush to modernize. At the same time, like in the West, we're in a rush to demodernize. To, to demodernize, yeah, if I can say that right, uh, we're backing up and having to undo a lot of the mistakes we've made. Uh, so it's amazing that we're going in opposite directions. Somewhere in there, we're going to meet in the middle and say this might be sustainable on both sides. But at least we can share what hasn't worked in the in the West and 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 go and value the traditions over there that have worked and have been sustainable. Um, so so uh, personally, and I know a, a lot of your listeners probably uh, agree. You know, we honor uh, the, some of the spiritual connection. Uh, Balance uh, of the spirituality with the uh, uh, with nature, with wildlife, with landscape. We we know that all these things have to be in balance. And in Sri Lanka, it's a test. It's, it's an incredible opportunity to put into practice to 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 learn to consciously put on the brakes to economic development, to consciously make choices that that, that could be then sustainable, and to honor traditional values. To honor the peasants and the farmers, the way that they actually have, they, a lot of them still have organic farms and raise stock, you know, that they sell to their local villagers. Well, we have a local uh, a movement here, you know, farmers markets and so forth. We buy local. We think it's so extraordinary. Well, you know what? They haven't they've been set up that way over there forever, and they're in a rush to undo all of that. Well, hopefully, what we are learning through this program, and that's my goal through our wild world, is to re-engage, reconnect with the balance that you've been talking about. Our needs, wildlife needs, the planet's needs. Because we've made these mistakes. Here in the U.S., we've lost so much. And you can listen to previous shows. I won't go into that now. But that's what I get on a rant and talk about. There's no need at this point 
to redo the mistakes in a place like Sri Lanka or any place in Africa in the emerging world and repeat the mistakes. Hopefully what we can do is learn from our mistakes and present this information in such a way that it becomes embraced as opposed to having to redo it all again and pride or whatever it comes up and say, no, we have to do it our own way. So uh, we are out of time today. Once again, I would like you to visit uh, Philip's uh, geowandering.com and savingganesh.org. And Philip, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I could go on and on, so maybe you'll come back again. And uh, once again, I just want to thank you so much. Well, thank you, Ali. It's been a great opportunity. Really appreciate that and look forward to me coming back in the future. I love your, your home here in Aspen. I'd love to have a, a reason to come back, so please uh, do. Absolutely, because <laughs> I want to. This is a story that is in process. We are on the cusp of a beginning, so I want you to come back because I want to keep up on what's going on. So I'm sorry, we're out of time today. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter. Visit wildeyes.org, visit geowandering.com, and savingganesh.org. Thank you, and this is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.